You may be seated. Well, I invite you to turn now in your Bibles to the passage from the Holy Scriptures that we'll consider this morning from the Epistle of James, chapter 4, verse 1 through 10. This is uh, a book that we've been reading through and uh, considering in the Spanish language ministry here at Ontario URC, and uh, a very fitting text here applicable to, well, all times and all places in life uh, here from James 4, 1 through 10. So here now the reading of God's Word, again from James 4, verse 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says... God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So far, the reading of God's Word. Let's pray and ask for His blessing. Father God, we are weak. We are feeble. Our strength is so small compared to Your infinite power and Your infinite wisdom. And so in this time now before us, as we consider Your Word, we do not rely on our own strength. We do not look to human eloquence. No, we we look to you. We ask that your spirit would speak through your word in this time, that you would open up our hearts and minds, that you would really cause our consciences to be challenged and convicted, and that you would, as we just sang, speak to us, O Lord. Shape and fashion us into the conformity, the image of Christ. Make us more like him. Give us your grace. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, loved ones, friends, and church family, as we all know, we live in troubling times. Conflict and bitter backbiting, defamation, it's all around us. From national politics to domestic strife in the house. What is the root problem underneath all of this? Well, there are a lot of competing ideas, aren't there, as to what's wrong with the world. A lot of different answers to this question. 
Some, many today, say that the problem has to do with political power and money and where it's found and who has it, that that power and that money corrupts us. And so all power and money should be taken and distributed equally among people. That's one answer that the world gives. Power and money is the problem. Others say it stems from differences in ideology, differences in thinking, in philosophies, and approaches to life. And still others have claimed time and time again that religion is the problem. Well, what does the Bible say? What does this text before us say is in reality the problem? The root to all conflict and strife in human society. Well, this passage, in this passage here, James would, James would have us look at the human heart. Look within. Here's the real problem. It's not out there. It's not society that's the problem. The problem is here. In your own heart. In the human heart that you and I were born with. With our depraved and sinful nature that we have inherited from our forefathers, Adam and Eve. So we see that James is putting the axe to the root and shows us that we are too in love with this sinful world and that our heart is far from the love of God. So today we'll consider this heart problem, see how God responds to it, and also we'll ask ourselves, what must we do in response? So we'll examine the passage with three questions. Why is the world in a chaos? How does God respond? And what should we do about it? We see the answer to the first question, why is the world in chaos, in verses 1 through 3. 1 through 3, where according to James, the chaos in the world, as we've already said, it's not an ideological problem. It's not a mere intellectual problem. Rather, the root of the problem has to do with that human heart. Every conflict in the world, he would argue, from the conflict between couples in marriage on a daily basis, in the home, to wars between nations that destroy thousands of lives. Everything has to do with defective desires that stem from the human heart. And what James is claiming is this, that every conflict in your life, every conflict in life, that we see outside of ourselves as well. Every conflict is evidence that our heart is too much in love with this sinful world and that our heart is far from the love of God. In other words, that term that is often thrown around, worldliness, worldliness. Uh, In the consistory room with the elders of the church, we talk about this a lot as we confess our own sins, the worldliness and how we're so pulled to love the things of the world and how we see the congregation and Christians pulled towards love of the things of the world. Worldliness. He affirms, James does, that all conflict comes from the passions that fight in the members of the body inside of us. So again, it has to do with these disordered desires, greed, avarice that's brewing within us, that hunger that desire to have that which does not belong to you. And in keeping with this point, an ancient philosopher, Cicero, he says this, it is insatiable desires that overturn not only individual men, but whole families. 
in which even bring down the state. From desires there spring hatred, schisms, discords, seditions, and wars. Do you see Jane's point? It's pretty clear. Desire is at the root of all the evils which ruin life and which divide men. Think about it. Every crime, every crime that happens in this world starts from some desire in the heart. Every crime starts as a desire that is given more and more attention, entertained more and more, which grows into action eventually. Always, when something bad happens between humans, you can follow that thread down to its beginning. The beginning in the corrupted heart of humans with flawed and wicked desires. To make this real practical, if there's any conflict currently in your own marriage or between you and your parents, there's conflict there. Yeah, it has to do with lack of communication. We hear that a lot, right? There needs to be better communication. Uh, More mutual respect, sure. But this is the root of that conflict. Both you and your spouse are desiring things that are not of God perfectly. Because if you were both desiring the things of God, if your hearts were both aligned perfectly with that of God's, there would be no conflict whatsoever. It's because of desires that, they're, that are disordered, they're out of sorts, that conflict exists. So when you think of the conflict in your own life, the bad relationships maybe that you have at work with a co-worker that you just can't stand, or that road rage that you find yourself engaged in every now and then, or that constant fight that you're giving your parents, rebelling against their will and their advice. Whatever the conflict is, at the root of it, you have desires that are selfish and destructive and that are causing that chaos, both in your own sphere of influence and also in the world at large. We've been talking about this, or we were talking about it on Friday night in our fellowship group. As Christians, we should be keenly aware of our sin. We should have a personal awareness of what our heart is desiring. We should be aware. We should evaluate what our heart is desiring. We should compare those desires, those aspirations of our heart with God's will for us and see whether or not they're in accord with Him or if they're out of line. And I don't have to tell you what your bad desires are that you have currently, that you have brewing and that are lurking within your heart, because I trust that the Holy Spirit is convicting you in your conscience, even now and throughout the week. Every time you, you engage or entertain that, that evil desire that you're pursuing, that selfish and destructive desire, you know the Spirit mysteriously speaks through our conscience showing us what we should desire and showing us when we are desiring things that we should not. And it is imperative that we listen to our conscience as the Spirit speaks through it, convicting us instead of silencing it. We must not quench the Spirit. So we've seen that this is an individual problem that we all have. These evil desires lurking in our hearts, from the, young, the, the youngest of us to the oldest. We all have this still. If you think of that and all the chaos that happens in our own families, in our own lives, in our households, then you multiply that in society and 
Hence the chaos that we see all around us. The desires of the heart corrupt everything. The problem starts here. And Jacob says this also has corrupted our prayers. He says that in the text. He shows us that even as Christians, we do not know how to pray as we should and as we ought. Often we don't pray correctly because we desire things that are not good for us, that are not in line with God's will for us. On the other hand, he says that we do not ask for what we should. We're not even asking for the things that we ought to be asking for. And that is a lack of trust and dependence on God, our Father. Because again, our desires are not aligned with His as they ought to be. And on the other hand, when we do actually ask for something in prayer, we often present selfish requests to God. In verse 3, James says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Passions. That word there in the Greek, in the original Greek, it's uh, hedone. From that word, we get the idea of hedonism. Hedonism. Maybe you've heard of that term. It's a, it's a big term. A word that refers to a philosophical lifestyle that's marked by the quest of seeking your own personal happiness, seeking pleasure to its highest and utmost degree in life. One commentator says this, if pleasure is the policy of your life, if that's how you're living, living by pleasure, then nothing else can follow than struggle, hatred, and division. And look, many, many people, many people are living by hedonism, even Christians, even if they don't know what that term is, if they've never heard it before. If you are living every moment of your life basically in pursuit of fulfilling your personal pleasures in this world without worrying about what God wants for you and your neighbors in the world, if you're mainly just thinking about yourself and fulfilling your pleasures, you are a hedonist. You are what James is referring to here. And this is dangerous because the pleasures of life, they stifle and suffocate spiritual life. In the parable from our Lord Jesus Christ, the parable of the sower and the seeds, Jesus says, as for the seeds that are thrown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of, the rich, of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. You see that? The cares of the world are like thorns. Love for the world chokes out love for God. Because as Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You either hate one and love the other, or you will cling to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, he said. And this is why we hear the strong accusation in verse 4, where James says, you adulterous people. Strong words perhaps even offensive to our sensitive ears this morning. Our heart is in love with the world instead of God. We have forgotten that life consists more than simply an abundance of possessions. Our hearts have forgotten to desire that which we were made for. God himself, desiring him. And in verses 4 through 7, we see the answer to the question of how God responds to this spiritual adultery. We see that God responds with the pure jealousy of a husband for his 
bride for his wife. James says God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And this is a difficult verse to translate in the original Greek, but I agree that it is best to interpret here spirit, not as the Holy Spirit that comes and dwells within us when we are made new in Christ, but rather the spirit of human being or the soul or the human heart, all referring to that same concept. So the idea is that God longs to have an intimate relationship with our heart. He wants to be our main love. He wants to have all our loyalty, the allegiance of our deepest affections. The concept behind this passage and accusing us of being adulterous people, it's an old concept that comes from the Old Testament. If we're familiar with the Old Testament and the language therein, we will hear it. In the Old Testament, God, the God of Israel, presented himself as the husband of his beloved wife, Israel, whom he called out of Egypt, redeemed, and then formed a covenant, a a marriage bond with Israel at Mount Sinai, uniting himself to Israel in love, in devotion, in loyalty to Israel, and asking her to do the same. And on that day they made vows to the Lord, But time and time again, the people of Israel violated her vows. She violated her vows and allegiance to God, which was spiritual idolatry and adultery. Exodus 34, 14 says, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Do we have this concept about God and about how he responds to our spiritual adultery, our spiritual love for the world instead of love for him? This idea that God has committed himself to his people with such a deep love that he cannot bear a rival love in the hearts of his own. He will not bear it. He will not allow it. God demands that we love him above all else with a special love committed and devoted, a love that demands our loyalty and our heart, our desires and the actions of our life. He he will not allow us to simply have him be an extra on our life or a tangential thing off to the side, a cherry on top. No, he wants our whole heart devoted to him in love. But instead, what has happened? As James clearly shows us, we have entered into an affair, an adulterous affair with the world. We've committed adultery. We've befriended the world and thereby made ourselves enemies of God. In the book that we're looking at on uh, Friday nights, uh, the book Respectable Sins, there's a chapter on worldliness. And in that chapter, Jerry Bridges defines love of the world in this way. He says, First, it is a concern for things of this temporary life. Second, it is accepting and agreeing with the values and practices of the society that surrounds us without discerning if they are biblical. So concerned with things only of this temporary life and simply going along with the way of the world, accepting it and agreeing with it 
and not discerning whether or not it's in accordance with God's will. This should change, this should change our perspective on sin. This idea, this old concept of, of God being the husband to his bride, Israel, and his jealous love for us. This should change our perspective on our worldliness. It's not just, a con- it's not just this abstract concept, sin. Rather, we see that it is personal. Sin is personal. You are offending the person of God when you disobey, when you desire things that you should not. It is relational. God has committed himself to his church in a covenant of love. And so if you are a believer, your sin is an action against that intimate relationship that God has entered into with us. It's personal, it's relational, and it's also adulterous. As in marriage, infidelity, infidelity in affair, adultery, that is deeply offensive. It breaks the heart of the other person. And so our sin, our worldly pursuits of pleasure apart from God, in a way, break his heart. And he jealously yearns over us. We see here that God demands, he demands a lot from us. He is jealous to have all the adoration of our heart. But if he demands a lot, as we see he does, we also find that he gives more grace to be able to fulfill his demands. That's in the text as well. James says, but he gives more grace. And then he quotes from the proverb saying, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see, his grace is sufficient to cover all our offenses, our infidelity. He hounds us down in our infidelity. In the act of spiritual adultery, he takes us and brings us home and renews our hearts, filling us evermore with holy desires and bending our will by his sovereign grace to his own heart, by his loving kindness and steadfast love. His grace. He gives more grace. And that's why Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher of the 20th century, said, it is grace at the beginning and grace at the end so that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us, there is the thing that has helped us in the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace. It ends with grace. So we see this is how God responds to our spiritual infidelity, our love for the world. He responds with jealous love and also yet greater grace that he gives. So last we will look at in verses 7 through 10, the answer is to the question, what should we do in response? And I want to read that again for us. He says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. and He will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, sorrowful, and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 
in brief, in summary here, we must repent in humility, see our need of His grace, submit ourselves to Him. God demands that those who are self-satisfied in life, living a complacent and would be confronted with your sins and your evil desires. Ashamed of them is what he's saying. You should be ashamed and begin to grieve and in a way have reverence again for God, seeking him, drawing near to him. For only then will they be able to attain grace and move on to a joy far greater than their earthly pleasures, as one commentator says. Only When we see our need of him and repent humbly before him, will we find a joy that is greater than what can be found in this world? One commentator, he says, there is a basic sin in life that can be said to be the basis of all other sins, and that is the sin of forgetting that we are creatures and that God is creator. When a man realizes his essential creatureliness, then he realizes his essential helplessness, and he goes to the source where that helplessness can be supplied. But as long as a man considers himself independent of God, fine on his own, well, sooner or later he is on his way to collapse and defeat. If you refuse to submit to God in repentance and faith, all you will find in pursuit of your desires is more and more chaos, as we saw in the beginning. And so Charles Spurgeon says, the great preacher Repentance is, an ascent, is essential to salvation as faith. Indeed, there is no faith without repentance, except that faith which needs to be repented of. A dry-eyed faith will never see the kingdom of God. A holy loathing for sin always attends upon a childlike faith. And that's what James is driving at here. He wants us to see our sin clearly for what it is, as spiritual adultery and to have sorrow in our hearts for it, to grieve over it, and that that sorrow, that godly sorrow would turn into repentance, drawing near to him with the promise that he will draw near to us, the promise that he gives greater grace. What he desires, what he needs of us is to see our need in him. And so I want to finish with the lyrics from this classic hymn, which says, Come ye sinners, Poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. So come, ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. You see, he wants us to come now, to draw near to him now, to return to him. He will draw near to us. He gives greater grace if we would just humble ourselves. Not to wait until you're better. Come now, and he will supply all the grace in Christ that you need and turn our hearts to love him more and more. May that be the case for each and every one of us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for this food for our heart, 
food for our soul from your word. Lord, we ask that you would help us now by your spirit to digest it, to meditate upon it, that you would turn our hearts' desires away from the things of the world that are not in in accordance and alignment with you, and instead that we might seek you more and more to find our joy, not simply in the passing pleasures of this present evil age, but in our God and in your kingdom and your righteousness. By your sovereign grace, bend our wills towards yours. This we ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in response to God's word and also in preparation for 